Welcome to Being Human. This week's guest is Jim Benson. Now, I first met Jim in Belgium. He was speaking at a conference there. We went for dinner. Uh, he really turned me on to this idea of personal Kanban. So, and we can get into a bit about what Kanban means. Um, but basically, how can we be more productively as individuals using some of the lean and agile ideas? I've gone on to read his book, read his books. Um, and there's tons that we can get into around that space. I also know, as well as being an author, you're a publisher, you're a founder, you've got a bunch of creative outlets, um, <laughs> Renaissance man, you might say. So uh, maybe we'll get into some of that as well. But uh, Jim, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. So maybe we could start with, I mean, the book that perhaps you're best known for, Personal Kanban. So for people who've never heard of, of Kanban, Let's break that down and then, and then personal Kanban. Okay. <clears throat> so um, a Kanban in this instance is basically just a way to visualize your work and limit your work in progress. And those two things are important because we can better manage what we can see and we can't do more work than we can handle. Yet we're constantly working blind and we're constantly taking on more work <laughs> than we can handle. It's, it's like two natural things that we do. And this thing kind of turns that on its head. It says, no, no, really, like, look at what you're doing and, and only do as much as you can finish. Now, when you finish something, you, you start the next thing. So just really quickly, the way that it's structured is you have a, a backlog of work that you haven't done yet. You have stuff that you're doing and you have stuff that you've completed. You write all those things down onto Post-it notes. You plop those into the I haven't done it yet column. And then you move them across as you do them. And in doing, you limit your work in progress explicitly by saying, like, I'm only going to do two or three or four things at a time so that you can focus on them and finish. Right. And, uh, well, at least in the book, it sounds like the, the, the first time you got into this was with a, with a crap band. Is that right? <laughs> um, yes, that Explain is quite a blast from the past. But uh, So uh, what happened initially uh, at the very, very beginning was um, I like tell the whole story uh, is years and years ago uh, at a pub just just out the window and down the street here uh, a pub in America you call it a pub a pub in America yes Milady, yeah, Milady's pub it, it happens and uh, uh, David Anderson and I would meet there every week and we would talk about two things one is how we were managing our people uh, at work. Uh, and our work itself, and um, we would drink scotch. And one day, uh, on the back of a napkin, literally on the back of a napkin, we said, "What you know? What if we laid out work like this?" <clears throat> David went off and did that at Microsoft in kind of a very you know we, it was like the Kanban method. We've seen like the, a very big Microsoft UA, um, and I am more of a psychologist. Uh, my, my background is in psychology. So I went more for the, the individual or the personal way or how we worked as individuals. And those two forms kind of uh, evolved side by side. Okay. Um, but well, the, the story of the book is the, is the oh, crap band. Do you want to tell us? Right. I think it's quite fun. You bet. So, so one of the things that happened was um, I, we've been using kind of the initial, our initial versions of personal Kanban at my company. Uh, and at one point, it became necessary for me to move to Washington, D.C. 
And in order to move to Washington, D.C. at that point, I was the only person left in the office. And the office had been there for 12 years. <clears throat> so it was filled with crap. You, you can't imagine how much crap you, you amass. Well, maybe you can. In 12 years, you just get tons of stuff. And so uh, alone, I had to figure out, or pretty much alone, I had to figure out like how to shut down all of our subscriptions, how to sell the furniture, how to move everything into storage, how to blah, 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 blah. And so I built this really ugly Kanban that we called Crap Bond. And it was all the crap that we had to do. And one of the reasons that that was important was because we had fallen kind of in love with that move the sticky along way of working. But crap on, at that point, I couldn't say I'm only going to work on three things at a time. I had to start a lot of things and leave them half done because it was like, you know, call labor and industries and, and, and close our account. Well, that involves a lot of back and forth and things like that. So there was um, a check for doing, uh, a check for kind of percent completed, and then like a, a section after that that said, you know, what the state was that it was in. Um, that is not a recommended way of working. <laughs> that is like a high duress, I'm in an emergency way of working. But that, in a nutshell, that was crap on. Crap. And, and the reason I like that is because I think a lot of people can relate to that. Like, just relate mm -hmm. to that. Yeah, I've just got tons of crap going on and how, and how the hell do I move my way through it? Yeah. Um, how, do, how do I calm the noise so that I can actually... So one of the things that that did was even though there was a ton of crap going on at the same time, I could focus on an individual fecal element <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and, just, and just focus on it and get it done while all the other stuff was going because I was clear about what the status was of those other things. Right, right. And in the book, you talk about this because a lot of people, the way they deal with that is with to-do lists. So do you want to talk a bit more about the difference between a to-do list, which on face value, this might sound like a to-do list, and, and, a, and, a, and a Kanban? Okay, so um, a to-do list is, um, wow, this is, this is total transparency here. This is a to-do list. <laughs> and when you're done with a to-do list, the first thing that you do is you, uh, you, you scrape it out, you kill it. Um, so you can't learn from that. Because it's all scratched out. So what we want from the Kanban is we want to be able to see the work that's coming up. And we want to see it in a way where it is, and oddly enough, I have some Kanban tickets here because I also use Kanban. Uh, so here are some things in my backlog. Um, you can see now, blurry, I'm not blurry, uh, that when they're in your head, right now you can't see them. So you don't know what I could possibly be doing. Now you do. Right. In my head, things are kind of ethereal and crazy. Now everything has, has form and substance. So I can move them around. I can, I can compare them to each other. With the to-do list, you can't compare things to each other. You can't see what pre is a prerequisite for something else. And then again, when it's done, you can't learn from it because you've just destroyed any record of it happening. But when this ticket moves along and moves into done, then that this ticket here suddenly becomes something that is a permanent record of the work that you did. So you can, you can evaluate it, examine it, learn from it. So it helps you learn. And the other thing you talk about is that it, yeah, and it, and, but it helps provide context for what you're doing. And you describe context yep. as, a, as a waste. So that's interesting. Could you explain that? Or, or lack uh, of context, should I say, as a waste? Yeah. A lack of what? 
context. Oh, context. Okay. So, um, so, oh, that's such an interesting question that like I came up with five answers to it simultaneously. <laughs> so, <clears throat> all of our work happens in context. We treat tasks like they're individual elements, but these tasks are all for other people. We, we rarely do something just for the hell of it. Uh, so everything has a customer. That customer is generally waiting for the work. That customer has a desire for what it is that you're going to give to them, even if that customer is like your coworker or your colleague. But there's another person there. It's a relationship. And that relationship creates context, political context, fiscal context, um, stress context. And when we don't write things down, we tend to just make a lot of promises. And promises are cheap. Uh, once you write something down on anything, you are much more likely to complete it because you have completed a transaction in your head saying, I, I am now writing down and committing to doing this. A strange that does not work with typing. <clears throat> so people say, can I use Trello or any of the things online? Yes, you can, but it will be less effective than, than, than writing it down. And part of that is that writing it down, when you're writing, when you're physically writing, you are actually processing the context of the thing that you are writing down. This is important enough for me to write down because Tony Ann is waiting for it. She needs it by Monday. Um, and it's part of this particular thing that is going to make her a happier person. Uh, so if we don't understand the context of our work, we can't prioritize it. Uh, we will likely do it poorly because we'll do it, you know, kind of to the letter of the request and not necessarily to the, uh, to the actual customer need, uh, which is why, um, when I'm working with companies and they have product managers or product owners, uh, I counsel them to let the people who are actually doing the work also talk to the customer so that they understand that the context even deeper. Right. And I suppose when they're having those conversations, I mean, this is taking it a little bit out of, well, I suppose it still could be within personal Kanban space, but when that personal Kanban is made public to the rest of the team, they can bring some of that context from their conversations to the, to the broader team in a way they couldn't if it was still in their head. Exactly. Yeah. So if you have a team using it, and let's say that uh, you have uh, five or six people working and you have a pretty complex way of working, so you have a backlog and then you have five or six columns for, uh, say, first draft, second draft, the client review, blah, 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 and then release uh, or done. Um, as work flows through that or the pieces of work flow through that value stream, everyone sees the evolving context of the work who's doing what are they stuck um do they need my help uh do i need help is someone available to help me who's overloaded those types of things and we can see that and we can act on it immediately rather than waiting in the till, till like we have a huddle or a stand-up meeting in the morning or until somebody finally just cracks and says i can't stand it here i'm doing too much work you know <clears throat> so seeing the board on a wall as a group gives the group a shared story or a shared understanding of not only the work as you've agreed to, but the work as it's evolving. And no project is ever finished as it was originally envisioned. 
there's always change in any project. Right. And something else you talk about, which I think uh, touch on here, is this idea um, that depersonalizing the work um, mm-hmm. has things become less political. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, could you could you expand on that? I think that's a very interesting idea. Yeah. So, um, if you're trying to work, so you're sitting there and you're typing away, and then all of a sudden I'm just in your in your space. And I say, like, I need this. Um, number one, you don't have the context of what I just asked for. Number two, I am an interruption. Number three, interruptions are really annoying. <laughs> and that is how we do 100% of our business right now. <laughs> yeah, right. We, just, we just run around and annoy the hell out of each other all the time. And then that becomes political. Why are you always in my space? Why are you always annoying me? Now, if all of the work is up on a board and you're discussing what is needed, and there are activities or actions as part of that board where you can note that you either suddenly need help or you will need help throughout the course of the day, then all of a sudden that gets scheduled into somebody's workflow and it depersonalizes the conversation about, I need your help, and it depersonalizes conversations about about quote-unquote failure. So if uh, ticket flows from Richard to Tony Ann to Jim, and then it gets stuck visibly, everyone sees that the work was just flowing through the system and the work is stuck. If the work is not visualized, if we're visualizing our work like this, <laughs> uh, then my back, there you go. Uh, Jim cheekily put his phone up to the camera for those listening. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so if, if, if we're blind to our work, yeah. uh, then what happens is when something gets stuck, that problem is Jim. That problem isn't the work. <clears throat> so we engage in something that psychologists call fundamental attribution error. We blame the state of something on the person who last held that something. So in the States, we call that the Trump administration, right? So literally every week, someone is being fired because something fell apart because their system fundamentally doesn't work. Um, has probably nothing to do with the people, but has everything to do with, with the system. <clears throat> so what we want to do is visualize the work that is on the board, put the, board up, put the, work, up on, put the work up on a board and visualize it. And then as things get stuck, we st- See that that is a natural part of some of the work. That variation demands some work gets stuck, and then we can we can fix it. So there's a couple of there's a lot of different ways that things are depersonalized, but those are a couple of them. Right, and it reminds me. In fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with Brian Robertson, who founded Holacracy, and he, mm-hmm. he said something similar. He said that the way that, um, at least in theory, the way that Holacracy works is mm-hmm. um, it it depersonalizes. In that case, the um, the way in which governance works uh, mm-hmm. and the way in which decisions are made in in meetings and so on. So it's a depersonalization of our working activity, which allows for much more sharing and uh, sort of humanity uh, within the workplace, but outside of the work, um, which I thought mm-hmm. was, was a fascinating idea, given how much press democracy gets for actually being dehumanizing. Um, <laughs> but I had an echo of it in uh, in, in 
how you describe Kanban from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, uh, we are incredibly good at accidentally building systems that hurt people. And we are not good at slowing down and examining those systems and saying, excuse me, what is it in this system that is causing us to have this kind of relationship? So in the case of a Kanban, when you have your steps to complete something or you have your work up on a board, the work that you're doing is arguably the most important thing that you engage in, period, because it the work that we do every day is part of our self-concept. You know, we'll say I'm, I'm a dad or I'm a husband, but those are, those are kind of, uh, not, not to belittle them, but those are kind of roles. But we identify ourselves by our profession explicitly. So, you know, I am a software engineer. I am a politician. I am a filmmaker. And that means that we are, by definition, being defined, we define ourselves by our product. And then we go to work, and then we create these unbelievably ungodly systems that don't finish things. Which means that our central, our core definition of who we are and what we do, we don't let ourselves do. And then we get really frustrated. Hmm. So it's not only depersonalizing in that, you know, you and I might have a better political relationship, but... That other depersonalize is the one that you just mentioned, which is the dehumanize. So when our work becomes mostly talking about our work, that is dehumanizing. So one of, one of, the, uh, one of the best breakups I ever had <coughs> was um, a woman named Erica in the early 90s. I called her up and I said, hey, uh, I, why don't we go drive down the Oregon coast for the weekend? And she said, well, I don't think that's what our relationship is based on. And I said, well, what's our relationship based on? She said, we have a relationship based on discussing our relationship. <laughs> and I thought that was the funniest thing anybody ever told me. Uh, she didn't. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it stuck with me. The, the, she and I had built a system we discussed the work but we didn't actually do it (laughs) and we do that at the office all the time all the time right right and so this leaves this is a way to have focused conversations about the work uh, in a way which is depersonalized it's more Mm -hmm. effective and that and and allows you to actually do the work it allows you to do the work and then have space for more humane professional satisfaction is pretty important right yeah um, the other thing I thought you said was interesting in Personal Kanban Chapter 7 was lazy managers seek heroes rather than develop their own people. I thought that was a, was a great line. <laughs> uh, I, should, I should tweet that today. Uh, <laughs> um, you lazy managers out there. And I think I talked about that in, in trying to find like the A-list. So... Uh-oh, do we lose it? I think we're back. Oh, there we go. Um, so uh, it was interesting to watch, though. Um, so, so yes, um, that comes from a place uh, of love because uh, I have been, I've woken up one day and said, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lazy manager. <laughs> and uh, 
you, you, you want to hire that person who's going to make your life easier. And that is understandable. And it's probably in the end, the product that you want. But when we hire people, we need to recognize that we're bringing them into our system and our way of working. And that if we hire them to be a hero, no hero ever pays attention to anybody else's system. They run roughshod right over it. And yes, they get their work done, but uh, whether it's uh, in uh, 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 Australian rules football or whether it's in baseball or whether it's in any other team sport, if you have one person on the field that feels like they're better than everybody else, everyone else will be worse than that person and they'll be worse than themselves because of it. They'll rely on that person to get that stuff done. And then what happens is when there's a big problem, you have one problem solver and, and everyone else falls apart or you hire a whole bunch of those people and then you just get ego battle. So at Grail Solutions, we hired people by problems, by being problem solvers. We didn't ask them, <clears throat> you know, can you code in C sharp or Perl or whatever? Um, well, we, we did, but we didn't judge them by that. We just wanted to make sure. But if they came and they said, I'm a C sharp expert, we're like, that's good. Go, go do that somewhere else. But if they came to us and said, yeah, I do C sharp and I do Perl and I do this, blah, 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 blah. Then we would say, okay, well, that's, that's cool. Uh, you obviously enjoy the craft or the art of making software. Now, can you tell us, can you tell us a narrative of a problem that you faced and you solved? Not necessarily technical, but the harder the problem, the better. Even better if you solved it with other people. And what we want to do is judge a couple of things. One is, could they actually define a problem? Could they define a problem statement? Uh, could they discuss that problem? And then could they, you know, tell a coherent story about, um, about what happened? Now, what that told us was that that person was basically competent to do almost anything. Therefore, that person could come into our culture, we could train them the culture, train them the Kanban, whatever, and we could develop them, and they could participate in the development of us, because that was a relationship that we could have. Right. And you talk about how you could, by inculcating, if you like, people into that way of thinking and that type of system, you'd have people who are maybe C-level developers operating at a similar level to what, you know, your, your A-level. Oh, they would outperform high-level developers every time because there's another thing that we did as part of the Kanban, which is because the Kanban gave people context. It gave the word coherence. <clears throat> because our company invested time and energy into developing what W. Edwards Deming calls a constancy of purpose. You know, do you understand why you're there, why the company is special, why the product is special, why the customers are special, and what your role is in those relationships? People can get almost anything done. Right, right. And it sort of dispels that myth of the, you know, that the, the, the A, A star developer is maybe 10 times more productive than the, than the C grade developer. Or that, that. Yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, it, it's in, in, in a broken system, someone who refuses to break is a star. But what they're doing is they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're personally refusing to break. They're not fixing the system. Hmm. Right. And what needs to happen in companies isn't to hire a bunch of people who won't break. It's to build a system that doesn't break people. Right. Right. Reminds me a bit of the, the all backs hiring policy, right? They, they like talent is like third on the list of their hiring criteria. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and top is, yeah, as I understand it, is, is attitude and their willingness to work as part of the team. Mm -hmm. It's a big part um, why they're successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the funny thing about attitude, that word, is that it can sound very soft and it can sound very subjective. Um, and it's not attitude like, gung-ho, I want to go, let's do it. It's attitude like, am I capable of dealing with a crisis in a, in a rational way. Mm. Uh, will I be there to support other people? You know, that's, 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 you, know, you want them, you want people to be positive, but at the same time, you know, you want that very real trait of, of being able to identify a problem and understanding that's that what we do in business is solve problems. And along the way, a product is created. Right. Rather than we create products and then we have to deal with a bunch of problems on the way there. Mm -hmm. So if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, right, scrap the to-do lists. I'm going to give this, this thing a go. Um, <laughs> what, what are the, what are the, what are the most common challenges that do you, that, that you find people have in adopting this way of working and, and how, how could they deal with that? Well, uh, I think the biggest one is a lot of people don't have any control over the amount of the quality of the context of the work that they're doing. Uh, they're stuck in systems that feed them more work than they can handle, that blame them when they fall behind because they're oper operating above capacity, uh, that put them around other people who are operating above their capacity. Therefore, there's a lot of rework, which makes people work even more above capacity. And that makes using the board difficult. Uh, it, you know, how can I limit my work in progress when my boss is yelling at me, I've given you these five things to do and I want to make sure you've started them all. You know, and uh, the relationship there is that the more things that we ha have ongoing, the slower we will be to finish any of them. It's a very simple relationship. Um, this the processing of anything through through a machine. <clears throat> if you overload the machine, the machine either slows down or it kicks out garbage. We we tend to do both. Um, that's I think problem number one. Problem number two is people sometimes find themselves in environments of low trust, where they don't want to show their work. Literally, which terrifies me. So um, uh, about four or five years ago, uh, I did a round robin, uh, like week-long round robin, where I like, visited four of the major banks in Sydney. And I went to three of them and <clears throat> to go back and borrow a word from earlier in the interview, it was, they were all a crap show. <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was just, they were just completely... 
completely off the rails. Fecal fest. Yeah, fecal fest. <laughs> and then I went uh, went to the to the last bank, and the last bank completely blew me away. Not because they weren't bad, but because they were like so far outperforming everybody else. And in the first three banks, everyone said, "I am afraid to show my work because I will get in trouble because these things aren't done." or this isn't right, or I'm working on this VP's thing and this VP's thing at the same time, and they hate each other. So I went to the fourth bank. Uh, the bank was basically post-it note city. <laughs> so there were boards all over the place. No one had any problem showing anything. But my favorite part of the day uh, was um, uh, um, we were at the end of the day, and one of the one of the VPs comes up and says, uh, "We're going to have our VP huddle at the end of the day. You, we should, you know, we'd like it if you come to it." So okay, uh, that sounds interesting. And usually VP huddles are amusing, <laughs> uh, but this one was crazy because it wasn't in a it wasn't in a conference room. <clears throat> it was literally in the middle of the building, and they brought out these. Um, foam core boards with their stuff on it. And this is the crazy part. It, is, it wasn't their work. What was on there was problems in progress that the different VPs were trying to solve in their group, in their silo. And they basically workshopped the progress of each of them in solving those problems. So in the other banks, VPs would never do that because if another VP has a problem, you'd be like, oh, good, that means I get more funding next year. These guys were totally collaborative, so they're like talking away and it's super awesome. And then random worker shows up and says, hey, um, can I talk? And they said, absolutely. They said, okay, well, uh, next week we're going to do a rollout of this part of our new mobile app. And it is going to have these three stages in the rollout, and there are going to be impacts on usability as we roll out each stage. <clears throat> and then described what those impacts would be. And the VPs were like, that's really fantastic. Thanks for telling us. And the person leaves. <laughs> uh, they knew where the VPs would be. They felt like they could go and announce something, and they didn't think they were going to get judged or yelled at and if there's one thing that you could judge or yell at somebody about it's saying we're going to roll this out and there will be impacts right. and, and i was just like you know so they built a system that allowed their people to actually get their work done without all of the political fighting and i would imagine that at those other three banks any good decision costs that bank probably 15 to 20 times what it does, what, what a good decision costs the, uh, the bank at the end. And, and what goes into that, that cost differential? Oh, well, <clears throat> excuse me. The, the more that, <clears throat> the more, <clears throat> okay, you can clip that one out. <clears throat> so, <laughs> Certainly. So the more that you build a system or that your system inhibits the free flow of information 
or inhibits people from reporting or dealing with problems, the higher the impedance or the higher the overhead is going to be to make any good decision. And you will likely make a lot more bad decisions in your search for the good one. If you build a system that in one way or another puts those political, personal, or otherwise um, procedural boundaries in the way of good people trying to do good work. So those were four banks, all of similar size, all in the same city, all populated by mostly Australians. Uh, they could not have been any similar, but one out of the four fundamentally felt like people had professional responsibility and um, uh, follow through. Right, right. I get that. So to, so to recap on that, you're saying that it's one of the problems can be that um, it, you create this Kanban, but then you have no control over what's coming in, you know, yep. down the pipe, yep. and that's a problem. And then the second one is actually putting your work and, and making it public can be, be the other big, the other big problem, having enough trust where that can occur. Right. So, how do people approach that conversation? And I'm just trying to imagine somebody, right, who's listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm going to put a Kanban up on my booth or my wall or whatever. Yep. And then my first problem is I'm just going to get rammed with stuff. So, yeah, how do people approach those conversations? Well, so if you are in a situation <clears throat> where you feel like you're in a low-trust environment, the most important thing you can do is try and overthrow the low trust environment. <laughs> so <Second to> arms. <laughs> that's right. So, uh, so in so you have to if you find yourself that, that you're in a place where that is actively hurting you, you have two choices. You can be a victim and you can remain hurt. All three, you can quit, <clears throat> or you can change the system, and you can change the system. Uh, so. Uh, simply by visualizing your work and showing it to other people, either directly or just having it in your, in your cube and not letting anybody know it's there, but they'll see it because it's visible. That itself is that first olive branch of trust. I am trusting you to look into my cube and see what I'm doing. The second element of, of trust building is finding a way to do things with other people. So in the upcoming book, one of the that we're writing, uh, the, one of the stories that I tell is when I was at Michigan State University, <clears throat> we had a senior project to um, write a, an economic development plan for Albion, Michigan, which is a city in Michigan that had one uh, um, one industry, that industry left, and people were like, what do we do now? Um, it was a group project, and everybody freaked out. They're like, what if somebody doesn't pull their weight? What if we don't do this? What if we don't do that? And we, were, we had been studying and working together every day by that point, but for four years. <clears throat> we knew each other extremely well. Uh, even though Michigan State had 35,000 students, the urban planning program had about 25. So we were very acquainted with each other. And we we're, were called good people. But still, we had that, that trust fear. So what we did was the second thing that I would recommend to anybody, which is share your work as much as possible. 
And by share your work, I don't mean show it to somebody else. I mean, rather than going and asking someone a question, like, do you know this or whatever? Make that into a collaborative moment. Sit down with them, show them the incomplete thing, and kind of work on it together, even if it's for five or ten minutes. But that's how we got around the thing at Michigan State, is every Tuesday and every Thursday, we would meet for an hour as a group, and we would just do all of our work then, because we were looking at each other. And strangely enough, if you're with another person, and you're close by, and you have some familiarity, you feel better about each other. If you put cube walls up between you, and you type away, and you're always like, what are you doing? What's going on over there? That's... That's how distrust works. Distrust works by defining other people as external to ourselves and then treating them that way. So if we want to build trust in the office, we can use our Kanbans to come up with all sorts of tickets and we can say, this one's just me, this one's just me, but this one I can totally work on with Tony Ann or somebody else. Um, Find ways to work together so that you can find ways to work together. And it's, it's pretty much that simple. Now, if you get to a point where, you know, uh, cause I've seen this happen where like random boss who doesn't quite understand, or maybe they're afraid of something else. Cause a lot of business is driven by fear, but if people come up and try and break that up, just ignore them. And if you get into too much trouble, and I know this is glib and I know this isn't possible for a lot of people, but literally get a different job <laughs> uh, because uh, there's a lot of places. There's, there's a lot of people in this world that are running companies as abusive relationships. And your guest the other day in uh, holacracy's entire goal. Um, I hope <laughs> is to explore how we work together to create ways of working that are more humane. And that is exactly the same goal as personal commons. Right, right. It's interesting you put it in that context. It's almost like you might say there's a moral obligation on a spouse leaving an abuser because at some level they're enabling this abuser. And the best thing you can do for them is to to get out of the relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there could be some truth in that. At the extreme ends of this, it is, there is a valid corollary there. And the thing is, right now, <clears throat> worldwide right now, there's kind of this wave, this wave of distrust. Um, I wish it wasn't there, but it is entirely a human construct. It is a system that maybe some people started, but if we don't fight it, we all help build that wave. And that wave happens at home. It happens in the office. It happens at the grocery store. It happens everywhere we are. Uh, so it is, uh, it is a moral obligation, at least it is from me, uh, to actively seek ways to calm the stress in the world and to help us do what we do best, which is figure out cool things to do and then do those cool things. Mm-hmm. And if human beings are focused on that, 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 that's a game changer. Right. And, and 
And the other thing I would add to that, and this is from another guest, we talked about uh, trauma and trauma reenactment. And if some mm-hmm. people are listening to that and thinking, yeah, well, I've got, you know, this, this bad boss and there's no way I could try any of these crazy ideas from Jim. Mm-hmm. But you might want to ask yourself, right, if you don't feel like you can leave that relationship, is mm-hmm. this because you're in reenacting something from your past and actually you need to go do some work on that to get you to a place where you can make choices like the one that suggested? So, so I have, I have, I have what I consider to be the greatest true story I've ever heard. <laughs> so, I uh, spent the last year and a half working uh, with a Turner Construction, a major construction company in the U.S., and uh, working primarily in their New York City office. This is a 117 now 118 year old um, construction firm. Uh, as you would expect. Um, its history is very uh, testosterone-driven. And uh, so primarily the means of communication uh, to subcontractors or to anybody else was yelling. And uh, so one day we're sitting in a meeting and uh, somebody asked their lean director there, um, you know, Doug, what do you think the best lean project is in New York? He said, I think it's the blah, blah project. And they're like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, a blah, blah project. Totally. And they're like, isn't this guy the project executive? And he's like, yeah. Like, isn't this guy the project manager? And he's like, yeah. They're like, they're assholes. <laughs> how, how is that possible? And so... I'm listening to this. I think this, I think this is hilarious. <clears throat> so then the next time I saw the project executive, he said, Hey, uh, I was in a meeting the other day and I, I found out you're an asshole. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he said, Oh, I was, he said, I was uh, 30 years. I was an asshole. And I was like, well, that's a long time. And he's like, yeah, he's like, but that's how we did business. And, um, he said, uh, you know, if something went wrong, you would yell and you'd scream and you'd cuss until you had basically berated the other person into doing whatever it was that you wanted them to do. He said, and it worked. Then he said, but, but who wants to live like that? Okay. So he was the asshole boss. His trademark, his patent, his whole worldview seen by other people was that he was a guy that got stuff done and was an asshole. The thing that changed that, this is why I don't have any tolerance for people that say like, cultural change takes three years and you need heavy equipment and drugs and stuff. Uh, it's cultural change literally can do what this did. The rule that went into that project was no yelling in the trailer. That's it. 100%. So it was a symptom, but it was also the root cause. And it was the action, the human action, that when it was absent, enabled other actions to come up. Better, beneficial, helpful actions. Because the whole time I knew this guy, he's like an awesome teddy bear of a guy. Uh, completely lovable. And, you know, I, I, could, I could see that he was capable of yelling. <laughs> but, but I had never heard it. Right. Um, so... If you, I mean, granted, the boss there needed to change, 
but it is it is possible to achieve that change with small measures. Hmm. Starting, you know, you're maybe you're a junior project manager, you have a little project, you build that initial project to just be entirely collaborative. So you have control over that little sphere of influence. And then you get the work done faster and of higher quality. And maybe people notice, maybe they don't, but you do your next project because you'll have another next project because your project was successful. And sooner or later, people are going to notice that. Um, there are a lot of people that I know who work for, who work in hostile environments because that hostile environment gives them other benefits that they wouldn't otherwise have. Maybe they're the other, only employer in town. Maybe they have a big name. Maybe, um, maybe the work that they do, even though it's hostile, is good. Hmm. So I've seen that. I've been in evil, man, evilly managed hospitals that save lives every day. Hmm. You know? So, um, uh, so I don't want to be glib about quit, <laughs> but I do want to say that don't you know? Just like you mentioned, like someone who's who's a, who's in an, in an are you stuck or are you enabling? Hmm. And, and that's a, that's a harder question to ask than, than maybe a personal Kanban can, can answer for you. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so we've got, a, we've got a little bit of time left. I thought we might take a, a little bit of dive into your, well, you've written a, a couple of other books, but um, one in particular I thought maybe worth a, touching on is, is why plans fail. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we've touched on some of the themes already, but, Jim, why do plans fail? Um, why do plans fail? Plans fail because they're made by humans. <laughs> um, so, um, at the heart of, for me, at the heart of why plans fail is something that in psychology is called the planning fallacy. And also in psychology, there are things called cognitive biases, which are basically... Uh, shortcuts or reactions that we routinely make you know, kind of at the subconscious level that we don't realize that we're, that we're making. And there's over 200 of them. So listing them all is difficult, but talking about the planning fallacy is easy and it kind of is a big container for all the other ones. Um, but what the planning fallacy basically says is that, well, uh, it follows Hofstetter's law and Hofstetter's law says human beings will underestimate any complex task, even if they're aware of Hofstetter's law. So we start every project by writing a plan. Uh, I am a certified urban planner, which means that I can legally make plans for cities or states or counties throughout North America uh, uh, with 50-year time horizons, because apparently my crystal ball is infallible. Um, so the longer the plan, the more complex the plan, the more complicated the, the systems are, the more actors that you have in it, the bigger the deliverable, the more likely it is that something will go wrong. But even if we're just driving, even if our plan is to drive from home to a grocery store, we're steering the car. We're not hitting the grocery store button although in a couple of years we probably will, and this will become a dated video. But either way, we don't at the moment hit the grocery store button and, and, and the car just goes straight to the grocery store. You know, you have to steer around things. You have to, you have to actually aim. <clears throat> Our plans fail because we set up rigid plans up front 
rigid systems up front and we don't engage in learning, we don't engage in, well, when we don't engage in learning, we don't engage in observation. Okay, we sit there and we try and do all the tasks, which is one of the dangers actually of poorly used personal Kanbans is you'll put all your tasks in the back, in your backlog, and you'll just do the tasks and you'll think you're getting somewhere and you get to the end and you try and assemble them and you're like, these don't even fit together. So, you know, as something's flowing through and it gets to the done column, you want to look at it and say, did that go right? Did I like doing that? Did the person get value? Am I crazy? Am I wasting my time? You know, those types of questions. If we can do that, our plans are much less likely to fail because we're engaging in um, what psychologists also call system two thinking. We're saying, okay, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to look at what just happened or what is happening. I'm going to look at this problem and I'm going to solve it. And I'm going to recognize that problem solving is part of the process of making whatever it is that I make. So software developers don't type for a living. They solve problems. Turner Construction has no construction employees. They don't build buildings. They figure out how buildings get built. They get design documents from the architect, and they're like, this works, this works, this works, this is crazy. They send the crazy bits back. They go back and forth until they figure out how it's going to get built, and they figure out how to buy it, which is figure out how to, how to you know, how much each subconsultant is going to need in terms of time and money to get the work done. And then as they're going through, they find millions of other problems. <laughs> they might, you know, hit, hit a gas vein or, or, or main, or they might, um, uh, they might have three weeks of blizzard. You know, some, something might happen that, that, that screws with the plan. And then their job as a general contractor is to reorient the project uh, to get there. So it, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, our original plan is a encapsulation of our wishful thinking at the beginning of the project. And as things happen, we learn. And as we learn, we adjust. And as we adjust, we more successfully and more quickly get to a successful project. Plans fail because we don't currently do any of that crap. <laughs> no one does any of that crap. They say you know, they, they, that the, the most horrible thing is at the beginning of the year at companies, there's this big fight where everybody brings their idea and they fight over which projects they'll do. They write up the project plan in like October of one year and they're supposed to finish it by December of the next year as if nothing is going to change on those Gantt charts in, in the interim. And that's foolish. So... Short, short form plans fail because we are governed by our cognitive biases, which makes us do some pretty foolish things. Right. But what's so fascinating about this, and you accept this in the book, is that uh, even when we know it, it, it's almost as if we can't do it, we can't help but can't. employ these biases constantly, engage these biases constantly. It's 100% true. So Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow said, simply being aware of a cognitive bias just not make you immune from it. And so what the hell do we do, Jim? How do we, well, what we do, uh, just to be totally self-referential, is we visualize our work and we limit our work in progress and we build collaborative systems. So by visualizing our work, 
what we are doing is we are taking a lot of those things that our cognitive, cognitive biases would be firing on. We put them up on the wall where they're not only visible to me and to you and everybody else, but they're also visible to all of our cognitive biases. And then we get together and I take, I take this ticket and I say, hey, I think this means this and I'm about to do it. And everybody else says, you moron, that doesn't mean that. All of a sudden we have a conversation because this lack of alignment was caught. And that lack of alignment happens because none of our, none of our cognitive biases can be aligned. So those things, while if we're doing them by ourselves, we're going to make all sorts of dumb decisions. When we start to employ them as a group, all of a sudden we get them as checks and balances. So it's like, a, I'm going to run off and do this. And somebody's like, no, slow down. <laughs> Let's take a look at this and see what we really think th this particular task uh, <clears throat> entails. When we get up into the doing column, uh, or the doing section, and we've limited our work in progress, that means that we're focusing on our work, we're working a little bit more slowly, and we're more likely to catch problems with our work rather than just trying to complete it quickly and get it done. And when we do catch that problem, we identify that problem with completing the task as opposed to inhibiting our ability to complete the task. Hmm. So if we think of it as something that's inhibiting us, we're more likely, it's like, it's, it's you know, then I'm more likely to just kind of push it away and pretend like it's not there. But if I think that it's like between me and the camera, then I'm going to try and solve, actually solve the problem. Right. Um, and uh, so what we want to do is make things that in our system, system itself and the work that's going through the system and the people who are, who are in that system. We want to make all that stuff explicit so that we have triggers to engage in that system two or that rational or deeper thought. Because all the cognitive biases are system one. They're kind of on the surface. And the reason that they're there is because if they weren't, you wouldn't even get out of your house in the morning. <laughs> no. You'd be like, I wonder if that doorknob needs improvement. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that we don't need to pay attention choose these help us filter them out the problem is that as we become overloaded then there's there's only so much capacity here and everything gets stuck in the filter so it's like our capacity is kind of like the bottom of uh of a coffee pot or or, or say this tea kettle mm -hmm. and uh, you know we start pouring work into it and after it gets to about here it's just going to pour out you know pour out the top Getting right. stuck stuck in that system one area and it's not going to be processed. Right. So we, we so we design the way that we work and we operate to to engage in the deeper reflective processes where we're much less likely to in, engage our our biases mm -hmm. um, that, that come instinctually to us. And and also to kind of because cognitive biases are personal and they're cultural. <clears throat> So one of the joys of working around the world is seeing how different cultures process work differently, how they approach collaboration differently. And those differences are real. And learning from other people is often learning from 
how they're employing their filters and where they have success and they don't have success. And then being able to kind of take joy in that, whether it's cultural or, or individual. Right. So I write like the wind. I can, I can write 30 pages a day. <laughs> Give it your help. <laughs> um, Tony Ann literally could take an, uh, an entire day to write a paragraph. And she's your co-author in a lot of these works. Right? Yes. And so what, how that plays off for us is that, um, you know, I, I can get a lot of ideas out there, but she goes through and she very carefully processes all of those. So my cognitive biases are like, how fast can these move? <laughs> and her cognitive biases are, you know, uh, or her, her approach to this work is, have we explored every opportunity to make the point that we're trying to make in a way that can be consumed by the, the widest audience? Mm. And, and trust me, they are extremely different ways of working and we frustrate each other all the time. But that check and balance is how the quality of our product uh, is maintained. Yeah, and I would say having read, uh, well, three of your books is that the, it's, they are incredibly clear I mean, very, very clear. And and even the layout, even the design of the book I love. It's it's Aww. beautiful the way that you um you, you set out the text and the quotes. It, the, the, I find them to be very artful books, especially when we're talking about, you know, business books. <laughs> yeah. I genuinely, genuinely yeah, you know. Well thank you. That was a reflection. Um, <laughs> Great. Okay. I know that you're having your Nest devices imminently installed. So Yes, yes. I, I don't want to, nasty doorbell. Right. Um, I don't want to keep you from that. But one, one question, if we've still got time, that I like to, to ask a lot of my guests is, sure. for you, Jim, what does it mean to be human? I love that question. Um, So I'm trying to figure out if I should give the one sentence answer or the story. So I'll give you both and then you can clip out which one you don't want to use. Nothing gets good. Uh, it all goes in. <laughs> so um, when I was in, uh, I guess, junior high or high school, uh, it was time for uh, confirmation classes in our Catholic church. And um, it was very important to my mother that I go through confirmation classes. Um, and uh, she knew I wasn't really into it, but it was important to her. So I needed to find a way to become into it. So I went to my priest, Father Chuck, and uh, he was a Jesuit, a really wonderful guy. And in his office, he had bookshelves and bookshelves and bookshelves of every religious text imaginable. And so I went over to his bookshelf and I pulled off like five books. And I said, I will go through a confirmation class. I will read everything you tell me to read and I will become the world's greatest Bible scholar if we also read these and we can talk about them comparatively. Hmm. And he looked at me like, Simultaneously, like I was crazy and like I was a gift from God. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, you know, we read um, uh, uh, several different works. 
Uh, I participated like crazy. We got to the last day of confirmation classes and Father Chuck comes out and he says, okay, so tomorrow we're going to have the confirmation ceremony and everyone will be there except Jim because Jim's not really into any of this. <laughs> and uh, he said, I want to thank you for going through this whole process because, you know, you, you raised the level of conversation for the, for the other students and you, um, uh, you, you made this a very interesting, not, you know, it, it wasn't just another class full of people. And what I took away from that study, what I took away from my studies in like existential psychology and just my own, my own ethics is um, that being human is, can only be about one thing. And that's leaving the world a better place than you found it. And um, trying to do your best not to do any harm. And if you can, find ways to help others. And that's, that's what I hope that the, the works that we do do. What is tough is that I, like everybody else, is still human which means that we fall down a lot. Uh, we let our ego get in our way, our hubris get in our way, or we just do really dumb things. And I am no exception. I've done some monstrously dumb, monstrously damaging things. So also part of being human is understanding that that's going to happen and that you have to reconcile those, those two things. Um, and I think in the end, the reason that that's important is that we're not on the planet alone and that the more we don't reconcile those things, the more we are going to behave in, if there is such a thing, in an unreconciled way, <laughs> or as the Buddhists would say, in an unbalanced way, uh, to the people around us. And, uh. That is what I that is what I think being human is. Beautiful. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, for people who want to learn more, where's the best place for them to head? Probably the best place to head is personalconbon.com. Uh, that's the easiest to find. Uh, you can find the the books and the online classes and links to our other our other endeavors from there. In a uh, this one's kind of beat up. In a couple of weeks, we will release the personal Kanban notebook. Oh, okay. Um, which, uh, as you might guess, it's a very nice personal Kanban in it. And uh, some learning materials in the back on how to do personal Kanban better. Um, and we are working on a new book called Endeavor, which I'm announcing to the world for the first time here. Wow, it's a coup. Uh, and, <laughs> and what we've uh, what we found is that there's a difference between the way that we that we personally, psychologically, emotionally treat the word work, and we treat the word endeavor. And um, there are some some pretty massive ramifications to that in how we set up our, our projects, interact with each other, and so forth. Wow. Well, I'll very much look forward to that. Maybe get you back on. What's that? Yeah, one's that, out? that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Okay. Fantastic. And I promise not to have the flu. Then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, thank you again for doing this. <laughs> Your state. Okay.
Well, uh, get some rest and uh, I hope your, your install goes well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Jim. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.